Muchos años después, frente al pelotón de fusilamiento, el coronel Aureliano Buendía había de recordar aquella tarde remota en que su padre lo llevó a conocer el hielo. Macondo era entonces una aldea de 20 casas de barro y caña brava, construidas a la orilla de un río de aguas diáfanas que se precipitaban por un lecho de piedras pulidas, blancas y enormes como huevos prehistóricos. El mundo era tan reciente que muchas cosas carecían de nombre y para mencionarlas había que señalarlas con el dedo. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendía was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. At that time, Macondo was a village of 20 adobe houses, built on the bank of a river of clear water that ran along a bed of polished stones, which were white and enormous, like prehistoric eggs. The world was so recent that many things lacked names, and in order to indicate them, it was necessary to point. I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is the second season of Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. We also talked to two experts, Ilan Stavans and Philip Swanson. Before we go any further, we'd like to thank Fabio Andres Diaz Pabon, whose voice you heard right at the start of the episode, reading the opening lines of the novel for us in Spanish and then English. Fabio is a researcher at the African Center of Excellence for Inequality Research at the University of Cape Town, where he works on politics, development, and conflict. Thank you so much, Fabio. That was brilliant. So as Alicia said, this is the first episode of the second season. We are really excited to be back. We loved doing this last season. And we have a great and exciting lineup of books to read together. Yes, this season's list of titles ranges from the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova's Requiem to Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart and even T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. If you want to know what we're going to be reading this season, Please go to our website, that's literatepodcast.com, where you'll find a list, which means you can get the books ahead of time from your local library or independent bookshop and read along with us. Back to this episode. So I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Gabriel Garcia Marquez and the publication of 100 Years of Solitude. And I'm going to tell you a little about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. was Garcia Marquez, and how did 100 Years of Solitude come about? Okay, Alicia. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, affectionately known as Gabo throughout Latin America, was born in Aracataca, Colombia, on the 6th of March, 1927. 
Growing up, he spent his formative years being raised by his maternal grandparents. They would have a profound influence on him and his later works. His grandfather, who was a colonel and liberal veteran of the Thousand Days War, was a master storyteller, and his grandmother embraced the supernatural and the fantastic with deadpan seriousness. Garcia Marquez studied law, but ultimately followed his passion for writing to become a journalist. He lived a cosmopolitan life, residing and working in Paris, Caracas, Bogota, New York City, Spain, and Mexico City. Garcia Marquez's political stance was anti-imperialist and socialist throughout his life. He was a longtime friend of Fidel Castro and for many years was denied visas by the U.S. government because he was an outspoken critic of U.S. imperialism. Along with famous novels like The Autumn of the Patriarch and Love in the Time of Cholera and this week's 100 Years of Solitude, Garcia Marquez also wrote works of nonfiction and short stories. His influences included William Faulkner, Franz Kafka, and Jorge Luis Borges. What's especially significant about Garcia Marquez is that his work was both critically acclaimed and phenomenally commercially successful. He was awarded the Neustadt International Prize for Literature in 1972 and the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1982, along with several honorary doctorates in his life. Garcia Marquez died on the 17th of April 2014 in Mexico City at the age of 87. Cien Años de Soledad, or 100 Years of Solitude, was Garcia Marquez's third novel. The legendary story of its origin is that the famous first line of the novel struck him like a lightning bolt while he was driving his family to Acapulco for a vacation. He turned around, drove home to Mexico City, quit his job, and sat down to write, not knowing what that first line meant or where the story would take him. Writing every day, Garcia Marquez finished the manuscript in 18 months. The reality is a little less mythical and uh, involves the feedback of numerous friends, years of struggle and writer's block, and the work of several cultural gatekeepers, such as the enterprising Spanish literary agent Carmen Balcells, who was looking for new Latin American writers because she was aware that their work was growing in international popularity. What is certain is that the novel was published in Buenos Aires by Editorial Sudamericana in 1967, and it was translated into English in 1970 by Gregory Rabassa. It became Garcia Marquez's most commercially successful novel and has been translated into 46 languages and sold more than 50 million copies. Okay, for Cat Corner... I'm very sad to say that I've been able to find very little to do with Gabriel Garcia Marquez's feelings about cats. <laughs> he did write about them. There's a short story, for example, called Eva is Inside Her Cat from 1948, where the main character is about to die and dies in the story and her spirit imagines going into her cat, and then she agonizes about whether she still would want to eat an orange or whether she'd have a <laughs> repulsive desire to eat a mouse. But I don't think we can take that as indicative of Garcia Marquez's own feelings about cats. So I can't say for sure how Garcia Marquez felt about them. Elisha, tell us about 100 Years of Solitude. 100 Years of Solitude tells the story of a town. Macondo, by telling about the lives of its founding family, 
the Buendias. Only at the book's end do we learn that the family history, which spans much of the 19th century into the 20th, has been recorded in Sanskrit by a traveling gypsy named Melchiades, nearly a hundred years before the story reaches its conclusion. Is this the book that we're reading? That's not answered. But like Melchiades' history, the story we read reaches its conclusion when one family member learns enough Sanskrit to read that history. The reason given for this is that, quote, races condemned to 100 years of solitude did not have a second opportunity on earth, end quote. Yet with each rereading of this book, the characters of Makondo are revivified in the imagination. They do have second opportunities on the earth, perhaps. 100 Years of Solitude is a work of dazzling imagination in which the smallest details of one family and one town's life refract aspects of a wider Latin American experience, a wider post-colonial experience, a wider human experience. The theme of solitude is pervasive in a radically relational world. Macondo's founders, Jose Arcadio Buendia and Ursula Iguaran, established this initially isolated village cut off from others. Plus, their marriage is incestuous, like the theme of isolation, the theme of incest recurs across the generations in this book. As the past repeats itself, the individuals in this family also bear the same names. They are continually called in each new generation, Aureliano, Arcadio, Jose Arcadio, Remedios, Ursula. In each generation, we find certain cycles repeated, from an inclination toward incest, to a tendency for isolation, to a dogged tenacity for dreams and illusions in the face of an unwieldy reality. The lifeblood of the characters, the family, the town, is the lifeblood of the story, which persists for more than 400 pages in my book, in the face of death and decay. All the while, the book brims with body humor, intertwined with the mundane and the miraculous, even magical, in a family and village that assert their own life amidst the larger politics of the nation and changes that come with modernization. We're very excited to hear an extended reflection from Ilan Stavans. Professor Stavans is originally from Mexico. He is an essayist, a translator, editor, cultural critic, and publisher. He holds the Louis Sebring Professorship of Humanities, Latin American, and Latino Culture at Amherst College and is the publisher at Restless Books. A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez is in my mind the most important, most influential book ever written in Latin America. It is considered the Bible of the region, and for good reason. It tells the rise and fall of the town of Macondo, a fictional region in the coastal town of Colombia facing the Caribbean, where the Buendia family, many generations of it, are brought in to tell us how this town evolves over time. And in many ways, the transformation of Macondo is the transformation of Latin America in the 20th century. For that reason, the, the whole continent can see itself reflected in it. And the, the book itself attempts to be a mirror 
of the ups and downs of economics, politics, social life, religion, folklore, and other aspects that make the Americas what they are today. It is written in a delicious, sharp, precise style that has come to represent what is known as magical realism, by the way, a term that Gabriel Garcia Marquez did not like. The term magical realism originated in a sentence by Alejo Carpentier, a Cuban writer, who had gone to uh, Haiti uh, in the early 50s and described what he saw there as uh, lo real maravilloso, that which is real and marvelous. In many ways, Carpentier was trying to recreate the suspended, almost primitive view that uh, Haiti had in comparison to what the surrealists in France, particularly André Breton, were trying to do with dreams and how they were projecting that the cultures of the Americas were dreamlike. And so that term, lo real maravilloso, magical realism, stuck, for better or worse. And it describes Macondo, it describes the, the Buendia family, In many ways, it is uh, an attempt to portray the vision of uh, dreams and reality of the, the supernatural and the mundane that uh, coexist in Latin America since the beginning of time. And that Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, projects in a beautifully aestheticized way. A Hundred Years of Solitude is a book that has defined me since I first read it uh, when I was a young man uh, in Mexico in Spanish. And like every uh, literary classic, it has become my friend. One has friends with whom uh, one establishes all sorts of conversations and one can be mad at or very happy with. And I have been very mad at this book for a number of years for what it doesn't say. And I have been thrilled by this book for the many things that it says. Every time I open 100 Years of Solitude, it appears to be a different book. That is, I think, the best definition of a classic, a book that changes the way we change and vice versa. The older I get, the more nuanced the book is. It was once described as the classic book of 20th century Latin America, I would go even farther. I would say that it is the classic book of Latin America of any century. It will last forever, eh, as long as Latin America is there. And in fact, one could say what eh, was once said of eh, James Joyce's Ulysses, that should Latin America disappear, one would be able to reconstruct it through a hundred years of solitude. To me, it seems that the DNA of the region is there. Open it up, you will find characters that are absolutely nutty and characters that are as real and engaging and maybe imperfect as you, the reader, are. And you will also discover when you enter it that it is a labyrinth. It is a book where you can get lost and you can get found. Uh, where you make the story yourself and where Garcia Marquez invites you to see something that uh, gets transformed in every one of its 20 chapters. Just a masterpiece. I think that 
there are two books in the Spanish-speaking world that the Spanish-speaking world could not do without, Don Quixote and A Hundred Years of Solitude. I love these two books, and they will be with me forever. What was your experience of reading 100 Years of Solitude this time around? Well, as your question suggests, this wasn't my first time reading it. It was my second time reading it. The first time I read it, I was on a bit of a classics of the 20th century binge. And I was in my late teens and I was wanting to devour all of the great books. And so my experience of reading this book this time involved comparing it with my experience the first time. It was interesting to know what had stuck with me and what hadn't. There were whole sections of this novel that are totally forgotten. I think one of the things that I found interesting about it was how the first time I read it, it felt kind of revelatory to me, that this is something that a book can do. These seven generations of Buendias living together and living the same sorts of lives over and over again, the recurrences of this, this, this huge family saga, the sense of a completely different context from what I'm used to or from what I'd read about previously. So it was in many ways a gateway book for me as a pretentious teenager. And I think I loved it more then than I did this time around. And maybe it's because I was reading this at the end of 2020. And honestly, we are tired and it is a very long book. So I found it quite demanding in that you have to keep tabs on all of the different characters the whole time. Mine has a, a family tree at the beginning of the book. I'm assuming yours does too. I think mm -hmm. it's kind of necessary. Mm -hmm. And I kept paging back to say, okay, who is Aureliano Segundo? And who is, I, I forgot who Arcadio was <laughs> partway through the, the novel. So it was kind of hard work. And I think also because I'm a person who, who now specializes in post-colonial literature, I've read a lot more books that play with reality in this way, that are allegories of certain nations that are dealing with questions of imperialism and history and all of the things, these big, big themes of the 20th century that come up in this novel. So reading it now, many years later, I can't help but put it in conversation with other books that I've read. And that's not to say that it, it loses its impact completely, but it's no longer this great novelty and revelation to me, I think. Hmm. What was your experience of reading it? Well, I think there is an element of what you were describing in my experience as well, insofar as the first real tome that I remember reading of magical realism was Midnight's Children. And, mm. and that's fantastical in ways that this book is not. And I also think that living in different cultures can give you exposure to different ways of viewing the world that then reading a book that includes sort of these fantastical elements that this book is renowned for and in some ways yeah. was really innovative in doing, don't it, it loses some of that shock that maybe it initially mm. had. But 
when we're reading this in comparison to Rushdie, for example, or other authors, they're the ones who are benefiting. They're standing on the shoulders of this giant in many ways. Like they received this book and then worked with it. So if their work looks different or positive in certain ways, that's a sign of their debt to this novel. And that should not be underemphasized. Absolutely. But I would also say one of the things I worried about while I was reading is that I don't know enough about Colombian history and Latin American history to be appreciating what's resonant in the wars they're describing, in the developments they're describing, in the changing of the times. Yeah. And so that was both a regret and also sort of a spur to want to read more and to learn more and to think, ah, you know, there is so much refracted in this story that I'm missing out on. Yeah. And that's a historical gap for me that is impoverishing my view of the world beyond this book, of course, as well. And I think to recognize the brilliance of this book entails reading up on and learning that history if you don't know it. Yeah, it's so dense. It's so full of those details. According to Elan, it's the whole of Latin American history that could be reconstructed from this book alone. Even in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Nobel Prize speech in 1982, he didn't just talk about literature. He really connected it to the Latin American reality and the work of literature and the work of the imagination to the excess of the reality they're living through. (laughs) The excess of the reality. I mean, there is so much excess in this novel, isn't there? Yeah. Even in that speech, he says, I dare to think that it is this outsized reality and not just its literary expression that has deserved the attention of the Swedish Academy of Letters, a reality not of paper, but one that lives within us and determines each instant of our countless daily deaths and that nourishes a source of insatiable creativity full of sorrow and beauty, of which this roving and nostalgic Colombian is but one cipher more, singled out by fortune. And he goes on to say, this, my friends, is the crux of our solitude. Wow. I mean, that sounds like he's describing this novel, really. So, you know, I can see how it's reflecting that kind of way of seeing the world and maybe that reality that I am not privy to. And in this speech, he seems very concerned about that question of how we see the world and what he's offering in this book seems to be about seeing the world in a different way and perspective. I think the question of perspective is really interesting in this novel. It's clearly casting a different light. Reality is different for the people in this novel, for the characters. What is real, what is not, what is expected, what is not is different from the lives that a person who is maybe European or British or from North America might experience. And of course, this is a book that travels. It is one of the first, if not the first, so-called kind of novels of world literature. It's a huge smash hit. So it's very much read in these kind of cosmopolitan cultural centers. And we'll get back to that, but this question of perspective is interesting to me because one of the things that stuck out to me as I was reading was how little interiority we get of the characters. I don't know if this was your experience. We do get a sense of some of their thoughts, who's superstitious and who's not, and I just had the sense of of looking at people from the outside the whole time. We don't go into the perspectives of characters like we do in, say, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. It's a very different kind of an experience reading this book. Even though there's this huge theme of isolation, it's far less individualist. It's far less worried book than some of the big modernists were writing. And the way that relationality and the way that fate interconnects these lives, that seems to me connected with this more external perspective. The thoughts of an individual matter 
but their destinies are also in the cards that Pilar uses across the generations. Yeah. Their destinies are also presciently foretold by different characters in different ways. And then especially in the book of the history that's written before it's even happened. Yeah. There's this great line, if I can interject here. Mm. It's talking about Pilar Ternera. There was no mystery in the heart of a Buendia that was impenetrable for her (laughs) because a century of cards and experience had taught her that the history of the family was a machine with unavoidable repetitions. Yeah, I highlight that. A turning wheel that would have gone on spinning into eternity were it not for the progressive and irremediable wearing of the axle. I think that reflects a worldview that itself is different from the one that's being reflected in some of the modernist literature that's arising in Europe that clearly Garcia Marquez has read. And even in his Nobel Prize speech, then he speaks to an ideal future. He calls it a new and sweeping utopia of life where no one will be able to decide for others how they die. Yeah. But then he goes on to say, and this is where it really connects with the book, and where the races condemned to 100 years of solitude will have at last and forever a second opportunity on earth, which I do think is something that's happening through the writing of this book. He's offering this perspective another life and demonstrating how that past is repeated in the book, but then through the book as well, through the work that the book does in the world by making this perspective known. So the contestation of perspective or the particularity of perspective, I think is playing out on different levels with this book. Absolutely. I love what you say about that sense of externality, seeing characters from the outside, being about this question of individuality or, or the collective or something like that. And, and we see this, the same names going over and over again, Aureliano, 17 of them in one generation. <laughs> yeah. And that there is something that he's trying to excavate or write into being that's different from what comes out of like European modernism, like a different sense of what it is to live and to die and to be in community and to have a history and, and have a, a tradition. And I don't think it's just happen chance. There was one moment where he used an exact phrase from Prufrock, from Eliot's poem, where he says, there's time enough for everything. And I suspect, obviously this is a translated text, but it's such a well-known line. I suspect that the translator captured that illusion intentionally. This is a suspicion. Yeah, we both read Gregory Robus's translation, which is the translation, right? My version even has a note on the translation by the New York Times that says that he is one of the best translators who ever drew a breath. Yeah, and Garcia Marquez famously made a comment about Rabassa's version being better than the original, which, you know, is very magnanimous of him, but still, but still. <laughs> yeah, so so I think that those illusions then are, are probably in the text or maybe they're brought out, but they're certainly resonant. At the same time, I found this time reading this book very sad. Again, maybe I'm talking at the end of 2020, mm. <laughs> the tiredness of that, but that quotation that I read about Pilar Ternera about the axle gears wearing down, there is the sense of decline that really gathers momentum, especially at the end, because we have ups and downs and ups and downs. But I know that Macondo is destroyed ultimately. Yep. And there is finally a baby born with the tail of a pig because, you know, Ursula has been saying that if we keep intermarrying, we're going to have babies with the tail of a pig. Mm-hmm. You know, things just seem to get 
kind of more and more desperate and worse and worse. People mm. stop caring about things. There's destruction and ruin happening everywhere. And there was something sad to me about that. Mm -hmm. The number of characters who withdraw into themselves and become solitary or become obsessed with, I don't know, the manuscripts or, you know, when um, Colonel Aureliano Buendia is making his little gold fish and then he melts them down so that he can make them again. Mm-hmm. There's that kind of return and repeat thing happening there, but but for no end, like there's no change. Yeah, they seem to be fighting off the excesses of reality and then finding ways to deal with them by finding activities that are so absorbing in their minutia that that enables survival to an extent. And then as you say, the town is, it comes to a close. This is approximately 100 years. It's more than 100 years. And the family dies out. And they're, in the end, it's not, you know, life doesn't win over death. No. And it's also even just the family homestead. It grows and grows initially. And then with the power of the matriarch is sustained and maintained in order. But all of that energy and resolution that she brings to maintaining the household dies out with her and is only available in more moderated forms after she passes. And gradually the house isn't preserved in its integrity and, and glory and the mm. hospitality it once exuded. And so, but even in the high points, it's not a story where the characters are sort of morally impressive. Gosh, no, no. <laughs> they might be sympathetic in ways, but yeah, they're not inspiring. No, there is no great hero in the story. There's a military hero, but actually he loses a whole lot. And he withdraws and he's a strange sort of character. He becomes incredibly disillusioned. He becomes, he comes to see himself and his own mother comes to see him as someone who only fought for power, not for ideals. And yeah. he comes to see both sides, the conservatives and the liberals, as just people who do their habits in different ways. So there's an incredibly deep, Amidst all the sort of magical aspects of this book, it feels deeply demythologizing. Mm. Even the mythical illusions, when characters are levitating or ascending, there's often seems to be a little side comment that suggests an alternative explanation. So even the sort of magical moments aren't lifting your sort of readerly imagination to the impossible necessarily, although it's possible, but they can often be accompanied by something skeptical. There was this one part where the narrator is talking about the the people of Makondo when they saw the phonograph for the first time. And the narrator says, it was not an enchanted mill as everyone had thought, but a mechanical trick that could not be compared with something so moving, so human, and so full of everyday truth as a band of musicians. It was such a serious disappointment that when phonographs became so popular that there was one in every house, they were not considered objects for amusement for adults, but as something good for children to take apart. Mm -hmm. And then later when the narrator is talking about the telephone, it was as if God had decided to put to the test every capacity for surprise and was keeping the inhabitants of Makondo in a permanent alternation between excitement and disappointment, mm -hmm. doubt and revelation, to such an extreme that no one knew for certain where the limits of reality lay. There's this kind of that that sort of going between these two things, excitement mm -hmm. and disappointment, and the sense of an, an upturn and then a and then a downturn. I guess to go back to this idea of there not being a hero, the sense of a collective, the characters I liked the most maybe were, well, Ursula, mm. and she holds everything together. But actually, I think I probably liked Pilar Ternera mm. and Petra Cotes mm. the most. 
I like the mistresses who aren't actually part of the family, but are completely part of the family. Mm. These women who aren't playing the same games, they're the ones who I thought, the ones that came out the most sympathetic to me. The women of the family, aren't they described as being iron in their core at some point or there's something like this? <laughs> they're not particularly sympathetic, actually, I don't think. Mm -mm. I think you're right that the mistresses, they're the ones who act charitably or generously and yeah. even without self-interest. And so I don't think that's wrong. But I do, I do think that the characters in here, I think even Ursula changes over the progression of the book. I think that one of the successes of this book is the way that if individuality is handled differently from the modernists, it is handled. Even mm. the solitude, the isolation, There's it's, it's not that this is merely communal or something like that. It's not simple in that way. And I think that the characters change in interesting ways over time, sometimes becoming more like the patterns of the book and sometimes becoming more individualized in themselves. And even Ursula gains insights into her children with time. And that was something I found compelling because I think that the way that characters are presented as changing over time adds an element of sort of sympathy to each of them and makes them more interesting for the ways that they're unsympathetic, but also sympathetic and how that combines. <laughs> but also it speaks to the complexities of the historical moments and of the way that personality and culture are intersecting with real historical changes in this fictional world. You do get the history of each character and some understanding of why they are the way that they are. That's not in, in some sort of realist, psychologically detailed sense. A couple of the themes that we've dealt with in conversation so far, or that have been sort of threads across our conversations, one is the body and the senses. And this, this is something I found really interesting about the book. It uses a lot of sensory language, smell, taste, sight. These things are so important. Ursula becomes blind and hides it from her family for years because she develops <laughs> her other senses so acutely. And she memorizes the habits of everyone and finds out they're incredibly predictable. They do the same things every day. <laughs> and so <Yeah. laughs> she can actually find a lost ring at one point because she remembers how one character's habit deviated on that day. So therefore the ring must be on the upper shelf and no one else remembers that because all they remember their daily habits. So there's, yeah. there is an acute attention to the smells that come from graves and the sounds of things. And that, I think that really contributes to the richness of this world. Yeah. And another theme is myth. I think this is very much a mythical story. And what is the purpose of that myth? I don't quite know, but I, I read someplace it being compared to, you know, a kind of Genesis account for Latin America, which doesn't mean that it's an account of origins, but that it has some kind of mythical place like that for Latin American writing. And I don't quite understand that power and that significance, but I think that the mythical elements here, that's also related to the ways in which reality is presented as both magic and mundane, as being fuzzy where the boundaries of it are. And even the characters themselves, like one character, Fernanda, at one point, she wants to hide that her daughter has given birth to a child, you know, without being married. And she claims that the child has just appeared in a basket, like, <laughs> like, Moses. like Moses. And so, yeah. And, and someone says to her, the nun says to her who comes to deliver the child, no one will believe it. And this is the response. If they believe it in the Bible, Fernanda replied, I don't see why they shouldn't believe it from me. And there's that sense where <laughs> these kind of mythical texts and Myth stories of different kinds get read onto reality, get interposed with reality, and the seams between them aren't always clear. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I don't know what he's doing with myth, but there are moments where there are historical realities that are touched on in hmm. this novel. So I mentioned in the bio of uh, Garcia Marquez that his grandfather was a liberal colonel in the Thousand Days War. Mm. That's touched on with Colonel Aureliano Buendia. Then there's the massacre of the banana plantation workers by the American company in the novel, which is an echo of a real massacre that took place by the United Fruit Company, which was an American corporation, in Colombia in 1928. He's making a myth that weaves story and history together. And it, that's kind of interesting. Like, is this supposed to be a narrative about Colombia or Latin America more broadly? Is this a fable? Is there a moral that we're supposed to draw from it? My instinct is that it's not a fable, but that it is a myth that's meant to reflect something of Colombia and Latin America more generally. And that's one of the reasons it's had such success. And of course, its success is related to the way it's been received internationally. Yeah. And, and the way it was first translated and marketed, which you touched on a little bit before. But do you want to say any more about that? Yeah, I think in thinking about this novel, we have to put it in its historical perspective or, the, or even its literary historical perspective. In many ways, this novel shapes what we think of as world literature. It's a mega hit at this particular moment, what, 1970 is when it comes out in English. 1967 is when it's published in Spanish. It's an interesting moment in the world because there's a lot of, like, revolutions taking place. 1968, there's huge changes that happen in Europe after May 1968, the student protests. Like, it's a time of new generations coming up and questioning the decisions of their parents and the institutions, how things have gone so far, right? And people get interested in, in Latin America. There's all kinds of change happening and the world is looking to it. The colonial world and the anti-colonial world is looking to Latin America, but also the more the metropolitan Western Euro-American world is looking to Latin America, maybe with some trepidation, but also with some fascination. So this is a place of like romance and revolution. Hmm. And I think that plays into this whole question of magical realism that is associated with Garcia Marquez and this novel particularly. It plays into how it was spoken about. It was kind of exoticized. Look at this fantastical family saga where people can get shot and their blood goes down the road, out the door, and runs back to their mother, but carefully avoids messing up the carpets. You know, like, <laughs> look, at, look at this. This is kind of this crazy story. And I think that there is a kind of exotic aspect to it that really grabbed people's attention. Yeah, and in terms of literary history... It's after high modernism, certainly, but there's still this pervasive, and I suppose after high modernism it becomes sort of more pervasive, this question of, of how to handle the traditions you're inheriting and how modernization, industrialization, in this book we have a train coming into town for the first time. Macondo was isolated, it was described as isolated at the start, and then a train brings all these foreigners, as does a raft, but that's not as exciting. <laughs> Although the raft brings like 
French matrons, which is very exciting. But that question of how the traditions of the past are intersecting with industrialization and the change of modernity, the changes that modernity bring in different areas of the world, also are part of the literary history that you're speaking about. Definitely. One of the things that struck me, Erica, was thinking back, yes, about literary history and this book's history in more abstract ways, but also in concrete terms related to literate in this podcast. We started mm -hmm. off with Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, and I was reading a Vanity Fair article, The Secret <laughs> History of 100 Years of Solitude, which, awesome. <laughs> which has quotations from Toni Morrison in which she makes a direct connection between her reading of 100 Years of Solitude and her writing of Song of Solomon. Amazing. Yeah, I thought so too. That's so cool. She said... I was sitting in my office at Random House, just turning the pages of 100 Years of Solitude. There was something so familiar about the novel, so recognizable to me. It was a certain kind of freedom, a structural freedom, a different notion of a beginning, middle, and end. Culturally, I felt intimate with him because he was so happy to mix the living and the dead. His characters were on intimate terms with the supernatural world, and that's the way stories were told in my house. And then she goes on to talk about how she makes this transition, which we covered in episode one of the first season, from focusing on women and homes to focusing on men after her father died, which is something that, that you specifically highlighted. And here she says, I had hesitated before writing about those guys, but now, because I had read 100 Years of Solitude, I did not hesitate. I got permission from Garcia Marquez, and then the quote ends, and the article continues, permission to write Song of Solomon the first of a run of big, bold novels. And as it turns out, she and Garcia Marquez ended up teaching together at Princeton, a master's class, et cetera, et cetera. Wow, that would have been amazing. Yeah, that would have been amazing. And apparently it was the year that Viagra came out. So that was a big topic in their car rides because they carpooled together. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyways, that very specific and concrete connection to the history of our podcast is a nice starting point for this season two of Literate. And in terms of influence, I feel like Garcia Marquez has, like Jose Arcadio Buendia, been a ghost haunting some of our other <laughs> episodes too, because he came up in Borges and he came up in the Kafka episode, because remember, the metamorphosis he cited as being instrumental in making him want to write, because he said, this kind of fiction is possible. We can write like this. So as Kafka gave permission to Garcia Marquez to write the way that he did, Garcia Marquez gave permission to Toni Morrison. And I think that's pretty awesome. And I think it also is just uh, another circle. The wheel keeps turning, doesn't it? We were really delighted to interview Professor Philip Swanson about 100 Years of Solitude and its place in world literature and Latin American literature. He is the Hughes Professor of Spanish at the University of Sheffield. He's one of the world's leading authorities on Latin American literature, especially the new narrative of the Latin American boom and post-boom. And he has published widely on Garcia Marquez. Phil, we are delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And the first question we are dying to know is, when did you first read Gabriel Garcia Marquez and what made you want to study his work? Okay, well, this is going to age me slightly, but um, I first read 100 Years of Solitude um, as a student 
in uh, on my year abroad in the south of Spain in Seville. And as I remember, I was largely lying beside uh, a swimming pool, uh, soaking up the sun as I read it in 1980, way back when. As a young man, I think I was um, fascinated by the, the Spanish and uh, Portuguese-speaking worlds. And I think my love of literature and my love of the foreign, if you want to call it that, uh, was really a form of escape for me, frankly. You know, And also Latin America, I have to confess, was um, an exotic world to me and a, and a very exciting and enticing world. There was also, I think, an element of youthful political engagement at that stage. You know, this was the, the time of, well, one of many times of civil conflict in Latin America, but it was also particularly the time of the military dictatorships in the, in the southern cone of Latin America. I think I have to admit that I'm very much a European reader of Garcia Marquez, perhaps very much a British reader of Garcia Marquez. But there's a slight tendency in Latin American studies to sort of be wary of um, European or North American perspectives and dismiss them as Eurocentric which I understand and totally agree with. But if I am being completely honest about myself as a human being, I am still attracted to the otherness of Latin America and, and its literature. And that's what I love about it at some level anyway. Could you speak about the place of 100 Years of Solitude in Latin American literature? Yeah, well, in many ways, 100 Years of Solitude marks the, the climax of the so-called boom of the so-called new novel or the so-called new narrative in, in Latin America. And this is a massive oversimplification, but um, essentially the new narrative, the new novel starts developing substantially in the 1940s and 50s. It's not a movement, it's just a trend, it's something which appears to be happening. And this was a new type of fiction which radically broke with traditional realism. I think Latin American fiction in the first part of the 20th century was associated largely with a kind of documentary realism, which was attempting to describe and capture the life of the regions of Latin American nations. So it described the lives of the indigenous people in the Andes or the gauchos on the pampa of Argentina and attempt to do so in a sort of realistic manner. In the 40s and 50s, I think a lot of writers began to be very skeptical about realism and its ability to capture reality. In a sense, they began to think that reality was subjective, was complex, was ambiguous, possibly unknowable, maybe chaotic. And they therefore felt that you know, realism couldn't possibly capture reality. It was impossible to understand reality. It was impossible to describe it realistically and authentically in writing. And so they developed a sort of literary style, if you like, which sought to recreate that sense of the confusing, complex, ambiguous, uncertain nature of reality. Hence, the narratives tended to use you know, fantasy or structural fragmentation or multiple points of view. And this, in a sense, shifted the emphasis away from the author to the reader, because the reader couldn't any longer play this passive role of recipient of whatever the narrator had to tell them. And they had to play a more active role in, in reconstructing the text themselves. A big forum, of course, was Jorge Luis Borges, a towering influence with his sort of rather more philosophical, metaphysical approach to literature and constant questioning of the nature of reality and the nature of the link between fiction and reality. But this process of the narrative came to a climax in the 1960s with the so-called boom, or el boom, as it's known in Spanish, when basically kind of all of a sudden a, a whole range of these new, daring, innovative novels began to appear or even explode onto the international scene. And this was partly because many of them were published in, in Spain, and in some ways... You could argue that the boom of the new novel took place in Europe, actually. Barcelona was very important in the promotion of the new novel, as was Paris, of course, because many of the writers lived there. But also through translations, it managed to achieve a wider audience in French and English and so on and so forth. 
And so the figures who emerged in the 1960s became cult figures or, or, or superstars, really, in, in, in some ways. People speak of the big four of the boom, who were Mario Vargas Llosa, Julio Cortázar, Carlos Fuentes, and of course, Gabriel García Márquez. In a sense, 100 Years of Solitude, published in 1967, could be seen as the kind of climax of the boom, coming in the sort of late 60s. And this is the most successful and the most internationally sold example of the new novel of the boom. I tend to think that um, there's a slightly different element to 100 Years of Solitude. I think it's rather untypical of many of the other boom novels. It seems to move away from the sort of extreme complexity and the extreme ambiguity and the structural difficulty of those novels. By the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of the American new novel wasn't looking that new anymore. And people are getting used to this idea of these big, fat, complex Latin American novels. And I think now we start to talk about the possible emergence of what some people call a post-boom. That involves an engagement with more popular forms, writing in a slightly more accessible way, and engaging perhaps a bit more directly with social and political issues. While 100 Years of Solitude is very much part of the boom, I think we see that the beginnings, I see it as like a pivotal novel, in the sense that we also see that switch to the popular and the accessible. And just one final thing about its place in Latin American literature is its afterlife, because it was extremely influential, and particularly the brand of so-called magical realism, which is associated with Cassio Marcus. It's influential in two ways, I think. One is that it spawned a whole series of copiers or imitators or people trying to write in the same vein. Most famous example is probably Isabel Allende and her novel House of the Spirits. But it also, of course, provoked a reaction against that perceived brand of magical realism. For example, there's a new group of writers who call themselves the Macondo generation. Macondo, like McDonald's, capital M, small c, big O, N, D, O. So they were talking about the sort of McDonaldization of Latin American culture, and they thought this fluffy, fantasy-filled magical realism was a kind of fetishization of Latin American culture. And they said, no, we live in a sort of, you know, globalized, high-tech, very urban Latin America, and our reality has very little to do with that fantastic, rural, exotifying version of reality that we see in Garcia Marcus. So important to think in two ways, in the sense that it creates new followers, but it also creates a reaction against it amongst uh, a new generation of writers. That's fantastic. Thank you. So I just want to pick up on one of the terms that you used. You use this term magical realism. And I'm sure that our listeners would be very interested to know a little bit more about what you mean by that term. Why is that term used to describe 100 Years of Solitude? And does that have any relevance to the political significance of this novel? Yeah, I could speak for hours about magical realism, and there have been thousands of pages written on it. It does have a very specific uh, and long and rich history as a term. But I think as the 20th century developed, you know, by the 80s, 90s, the term had become so loose that it kind of lost all meaning. It sort of came to be applied to almost any big Latin American novel. And more generally, it came to be applied to sort of any style of writing in any language which had an element of exaggerated fantasy, usually involving some kind of family saga which stood in for the history of the nation. The term also became particularly associated with Garcia Marcus in the 80s and 90s and afterwards. It's not a term he coined, and maybe not a term he would have liked necessarily, but it did, in the public imagination, become very much associated with him. That's when it became very influential. There's two things, really. One is the stylistic element to it, and one is the sort of more political element to it. Magical realism is, in a sense, at its most simple level, simply the description of fantastic or exaggerated events in a straightforward, deadpan, relatively realistic language. So, for example, in 100 Years of Solitude, there's a scene where this beautiful young woman, Remedios the Beauty, 
one day she and her mother are sort of hanging the washing up in the garden and the wind starts flapping the sheets and gradually Remedius ascends into the sky and eventually ascends into heaven. Now, what really happened? I don't know. Possibly, you know, she's had an affair with an unsuitable suitor and run off with him. Or she's perhaps got pregnant and has been packed off to another town or village to cause a scandal. But what the novel does is to describe her ascending into heaven as if it literally were happening. Well, it could be just a cover story, which people then accept as part of the sort of local folkloric imagination that is really just covering up a scandal. So it's that sort of literal description of fantastic events, which I think explains much of the flavour of 100 Years of Solitude as a read. But you asked about the social or political dimension to all this. I think this is much more interesting in some ways, because I, I think what magical realism really tells us is that our perspective on reality depends on our cultural assumptions and perhaps our position in the pecking order of power. So, for example, thinking of ourselves here today as first world readers, things which we find terribly ordinary seem absolutely fantastic and impossible to the people of Macondo. This beautiful, incredible, shining diamond, which is so brilliant, is actually a cube of ice. There's almost a riot when cinema comes to town and a guy is killed in a film one week and then pops up in a totally different film alive the following week. Uh, and they, they can't understand or explain this. Yeah. So those things which, is, which appear every day normal to us are absolutely fantastic to people in this rural, isolated sort of Latin American community. But things that they see as absolutely normal and every day seem impossible or fantastic to us as educated metropolitan readers, in a sense. A young girl who's just seen ascending into heaven priest levitates after drinking a cup of hot chocolate. Nobody in Macondo bats an eyelid, but we see it as fantastic. So we're getting these two sort of views of reality rubbing up against each other, depending on sort of our cultural backgrounds. And in a sense, what the novel is doing is, to use an old-fashioned term, it's hitting a third-world view of reality against a first-world one, and it's privileging the perspective of a rural Latin American backwater, if you like, on the same level as a first-world narrative. And what it's doing is taking this oral rural culture and putting it in a mainstream European or Anglo-American form, the written novel. Speaking about what you've been saying, Phil, how the novel plays with audience expectations and your own uh, reflections earlier about the kind of appeal of this Latin American story, what do you think it is about the novel that has made it such an international hit? Well, I think in part, we've got to think about the, the novel itself, which, you know, continues to exist and be read right now in the 21st century, but also the circumstances of its production in the 1960s. The 1960s was the time of the Cuban Revolution. You know, Latin America has suddenly become interesting and important to the rest of the world because it was now a socialist regime in America's own backyard. And the liberal left in Europe and North America sort of embraced the cult of Che Guevara and the cult of the revolution. So I think the time was right for um, Latin America to be, and this sounds a bit cynical, but sellable to uh, an educated liberal readership. And this coincides with this boom and this commercial promotion of, of the new novel throughout the world. So I think there are some circumstantial things which help make this novel take off. But I think more fundamentally, it's a great novel because it offers us a, a totally new way of looking at the world. And I'm talking about international readers now. I think that's important. It's a novel on a grand scale. It's also, of course, entertaining. It's readable. It's deadly serious, but it's also very funny. And it combines that thrill of political identification with a large dose of ambiguity, 
So it's engaging, but it's also very rich as literature in that it's open to sort of multiple readings, multiple interpretations that can be read endlessly over and over again by readers for generations to come. And people still argue about what it's all about, what it may or may not mean. Which is perhaps the perfect jumping off point to ask, in your view, is this book truly one of the books of the century? And would you pick it out of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's body of work? Um, I, w- I would say yes to both, frankly. Yeah, Gaston Mark has written a whole range of types of fiction. I mean, he writes novels of love. He writes sort of fiction which is more journalistic. He's written historical fiction. Some of his work is extremely complex in the new novel mode. Much of it is very popular in, in style and tone. And I think what this novel has is that accessibility, but mixed with richness and complexity. And that's what makes it stand out, I think. But I think more importantly, what this novel did was put Latin American culture on the world map, basically. and I think it's international reach is what's really interesting in a way. This became the impetus for much of what we would now think of as post-colonial writing. But I think it also changed the whole nature of world literature. I mean, if you think of, say, from a UK perspective, the, the Booker Prize in the 80s and 90s, it's very hard to imagine without the direct or indirect influence of 100 Years of Solitude. It's hard to imagine the existence of Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children or Ben Okri's The Famished Road or... Aaron Dati Roy's The God of Small Things. Tony Morrison also, I think, owes some kind of direct or indirect debt to Garcia Marcus's brand of magical realism. And I think it sort of seeps into sort of the literary world even much more generally than that, well beyond the post-colonial writers. And it starts to influence all sorts of novels, I think, which wouldn't exist, I think, were it not for 100 years of solitude. Alicia, the New York Public Library listed Cien Años de Soledad, 100 Years of Solitude, as one of its books of the century. Do you agree? Should this go on the list? Yes, it absolutely should. There's no question in my mind. I think that the level of influence it's had is remarkable, but also the place it has in Latin American literature is equally, if not more, um, remarkable. And so that is to say its relation to world literature, to the way that literature is written, to the way that novels are written, what's possible in the novel, but then also the way that it's embedded in a particular cultural history. Both of those things make it invaluable in my view. I think that I am not yet a properly equipped reader of it, that I haven't gotten the fullness of it. And that's part of what entices me about a book that makes me think a book is valuable. It's not a book that you're going to sit down. Well, some people might sit down at the pool side and love it like Phil told us he did. (laughs) And some people might find it long or demanding lots from them as readers. Maybe demanding lots from them. Maybe it will feel apparently simple at the start. It could have all sorts of impacts, but I think that if you take the time to learn a little bit more about the literary history and the cultural history, it stands up to that. And it will continue to reward rereading and will continue to reward further research and to teach us about the cultural history of our world and of the emotions and the way that society has been formed, the way that narratives have been structured. And that's valuable because that means what we have available to us today is wider and deeper because we have those resources that haven't just been extinguished, like the village of Macondo, but that live on, that have their afterlife in this novel. So absolutely no question in my mind. What about you, Erica? Is this one of the books of the century? 
Wow, that was such a definitive answer. And you touched on so many of the points that I would want to talk about. And my answer is yes as well. This book, as I said, was revelatory to me the first time I read it. It opened up a whole world. And I don't just mean the world of its setting. I mean kind of a way of seeing, a way of telling a story, the possibilities of a narrative or of a novel, the giant scope of it, and yet the great detail of it. And just because I've read several books that have been influenced by it, and so this way of telling a story is now more familiar to me, does not diminish its importance. How this is a kind of a gateway book being told in a, a new kind of vernacular, maybe, something that is critical and feels kind of post-colonial, and it has had such an immense influence. So I say yes. I don't think that we could have a list of the books of a century without this particular century of solitude represented. read the last word of 100 years of solitude but the world has not ended <laughs> however this episode soon will we'd like to thank Ilan Stavans and Philip Swanson for talking to us for this episode all original music was made by me thank you Erica My pleasure. that is such a treat <laughs> on the next episode in two weeks time we'll be reading Anna Akhmatova's Requiem Want to read along? Please do. It's a long poem, but a short work and available readily online. We have included a link on our website to a preferred translation, but the most important thing is that you read along. We'd also love to hear from you as ever. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or on this episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter at literatepodcast.com. Or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please uh, rate it, review it, and subscribe using whatever you use to listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends about it. Word of mouth really helps us. And we'd love to expand our reading community. Absolutely. Of course, to sign off. We just want to leave you with the encouragement. Please support your local library. An independent bookshop. <laughs> <laughs>